0: All right, well, we're going to continue uh, our study in, in the book of Proverbs, and we're just kind of working our way through the first seven verses, and we've, we've obviously finished, um, finished up the first six verses. I'll give a little bit of a review of that, but today we're going to focus in on verse seven, which really constitutes what I would, what I would say is the theme of the book of Proverbs. But we've talked about uh, wisdom and defined it in, in a pretty simple way. Wisdom is skillfully applying knowledge to the matter of practical living in the fear of the Lord. I came across another more expansive um, description of wisdom um, that I, I thought was helpful to kind of elaborate on this, this idea, this uh, pursuit of wisdom. Um, Dr. Richard Mayhew says this, Wisdom reflects the intent and discipline to make godly choices in a world filled with sinful distractions and detours. Wisdom represents the culmination of knowing and understanding carried to its practical and ultimate end. Wisdom involves knowing the facts of divine revelation in Scripture, as well as understanding them in the sense of comprehending God's intention, that they lead to a life of redemption and practical sanctification. Wisdom, then, engages the human intellect... And, and will to translate this knowledge and understanding into, and I like this phrase, into a pattern of godly experience as the habit of one's life. And then, of course, we highlighted Charles Spurgeon's statement on wisdom. Wisdom is the right use of knowledge. And then he contrasts that with some other idea that I think we would want to, to avoid at all costs. He says, "...to know is not to be wise. Many men know a great deal." And are all the greater fools for it. There is no fool so great as a knowing fool, but to know how to use knowledge is to have wisdom. So those are some of the things that we talked about in the last few weeks to kind of shape up our understanding of wisdom. We also talked last week. we made a point last week that, that while, while a study of proverbs is a study about wisdom, that proverbs, in, in itself, the book of Proverbs, is not the consummate source for gaining wisdom. I think this kind of goes without saying. But God himself is the ultimate source of wisdom. And so we grow in wisdom as we grow in our knowledge of God. That's, that's the point. And Proverbs provides one avenue for us to grow in wisdom. Um, in other words, the caution here for us is to Not have an overly simplistic view of the book of Proverbs to think that, okay, well, if I want to learn wisdom or if I want to grow in wisdom, all I got to do is go to Proverbs. And I'm not saying that any of us in this room would do that, but it's certainly not an implausible idea. And in fact, uh, many people can be led astray if they don't understand how to to interpret and rightly read and and apply even Proverbs itself as it's compiled in the book of Proverbs. So, So again, God himself is the source of wisdom, and Proverbs provides one means or one channel for us to know and understand the heart and mind and will of God and his purposes as a way of gaining and growing in wisdom. So Proverbs chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, provides us with this introduction to the book, and we spent some time um, over the last couple of weeks looking at these introductory verses we talked last week about the purpose, the benefits, and the beneficiaries of Proverbs. We also looked at the various forms of wisdom that are introduced in these first few verses. And today we're going to look at the theme of Proverbs that we see in, in verse 7 of chapter 1. Uh, just a reminder, the purpose and benefits and beneficiaries of Proverbs, they're just inter- we're introduced to all these sort of terms that have synonymous ideas. They're sort of synonyms of one another. That really give us this grand scope and value of wisdom, you see terms in the first few verses like wisdom, instruction, words of insight, instruction and in wise dealing, righteousness, justice and equity, prudence, knowledge, discretion, learning, guidance all these things just pile term and concept upon term and concept in these introductory verses to point out the the purpose and benefits of proverbs, and then you also have um, You also have the beneficiaries that are highlighted in these first few verses. For example, you have the simple or the naive. We talked about the naive, the simple being the naive, those who are easily influenced, those who might be termed as gullible um, and easily seduced into uh, sinful or hurtful, uh, wrongful action or lifestyle. And, And the benefit to the simple is prudence. Uh, a cleverness, a cunning, an ability to no longer be gullible, but to be um, to be shrewd as a serpent, as the New Testament might might refer to it, to be to be wise in all your dealings. It's also one of the benefits are, are the uh, the youth, and it says that knowledge and discretion are gained by the youth, knowing and doing what God requires. And, and having discretion or the ability to plan prudently, to, to make decisions as opposed to impulsiveness or reactionary living. And you, it stands to reason when you think of some of the typical characteristics of youth, one of the big ones is not, not thinking before acting, not thinking before speaking, or not really planning things out very well. That tends to be characteristic of, of young people. They're very impulsive. And what wisdom brings as, is, is this this discretion or this knowledge that leads to um, more thoughtful living, more thoughtful planning um, it 's also a guard against the deceitful scheming that 's often associated with youth where you 're always kind of trying to you know, figure out how to get away with this or you know the uh, do, do things in the least possible you know, requirement, you know whatever the minimal is to get by that kind of thing. It, it, it guards us against that, and it actually builds up something much greater than, than the minimal effort. That's what wisdom does in, 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 in giving the youth this knowledge and discretion. Um, we talked about various forms of wisdom. There's references in these first few verses to a proverb, a saying, the words of the wise, or riddles, and we'll talk more about that as we, as we move on into the study and see some of these, these concepts uh, fleshing out, but these are just different ways of, of understanding the various forms of wisdom or wisdom literature uh, as it's, it plays out in Scripture. But today, as I said, we're going to center our attention on Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, where we are introduced to the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 1, 7 says, "...the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction." So immediately we're faced with this stark contrast of ideas or concepts. You've got on one hand the, the 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 wise, the the concept of wisdom, and on the other hand, you have the concept of the fool or folly. and And the, the supporting characteristics here are the fear of the Lord as being the beginning of knowledge or the beginning of wisdom. And then this characteristic of the fool is the one who despises wisdom and instruction. So it gives a strong characterization of the fool in contrast to this idea of the fear of the Lord being the beginning of knowledge. A companion verse to this is is chapter 9, verse 10, which says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So we're introduced to these two key ideas right out of the gate. The first one is the fear of the Lord. And the other one is the beginning of knowledge or wisdom. So I want to just take a little bit of time to provide some, some clarity around those as terms or as concepts from Scripture. And then we'll kind of dig into it a little bit more to think about the implications of, of these terms or these ideas and really kind of have some discussion around that. So let's start with the second one. Let's start with the, the beginning of wisdom. We'll talk more at length about the fear of the Lord as a really crucial um, idea or principle from Scripture. But let's start with the fact that, that this verse says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, or as verse nine, uh, chapter uh, 9, verse 10 says, the beginning of wisdom, using these ideas of knowledge and wisdom synonymously. You get the sense from at least the English reading of it that it, it has to do with sort of a point in time. And when you say... Um, you know, this is the beginning of our lives together, a new married couple. We're beginning our lives together. It's, it's a point in time. Someone who is celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary probably wouldn't characterize that as them beginning their lives together. It doesn't make sense from a chronological standpoint. So it stands to reason that you could attribute this, or it might seem um, to make the most sense to attribute this as, as having the fear of the Lord as being the important starting point. So in other words, one sort of simplistic, very linear way to think about and apply this, which I would say is not not accurate, we'll talk about this, but, but it's certainly possible that you might look at this to say, I need to understand how to fear the Lord so that I can begin to have wisdom. And that's really not the total the totality of this concept, although it does include that. Um, you might have uh, sort of a, a, a different view. Some people might have a different view when they ask the question, where does wisdom begin? Where does wisdom come from? And so if you thought about this in, in terms of like a beginning point, a beginning point in time or a beginning event when wisdom comes onto the scene you would would probably go to to the Greek pantheon of gods to to find an answer. That would be one one possible place you would go because Athena, in the pantheon of of Greek gods, is known as the goddess of wisdom and military victory and also the patron of the city of Athens. So here's here's how wisdom in that concept began. Athena, was um, her parents were Zeus, the chief god in the Pantheon, right? Zeus and Medus. Zeus had heard a prophecy that said that the child that Medus would bear would be greater than all the gods, would become the Lord of Heaven. So Zeus, obviously, did not want to lose his place as the chief of all the gods in the Pantheon. He basically consumed Medus, while she was pregnant with his child. Now, this led to Zeus developing a very, very, very bad headache. So much so that another god in the Pantheon, I don't have his name here, but he had to cut his head open. And out from his head, in this crucial headache that Zeus was experiencing, came Athena, Fully, fully garbed in, in military, full-grown full and fully garbed in military uh, military attire, um, and she was born um, out of Zeus's head, and she became the consummate source or goddess of wisdom. So that would be one idea, right? I'm thinking that, that we're all on board with that not being accurate, right? <laughs> we, we don't need to tease that out any. But when you think about when you think about where do where do things where did these things begin, where do these things come from? There are all sorts of you know crazy concepts about this idea of how do I how do I how do I start getting something? How do I start to acquire something like wisdom? And so this would be some you know mythological concept of that just to, to kind of illustrate that point. But obviously, this term beginning of wisdom, it does refer to a starting point. In other words, you will not gain wisdom ever if you don't begin to understand and learn to fear the Lord. Okay, So there is an element of it being an actual chronological starting point in terms of gaining wisdom. So it's an, but it's also this initial reference point or foundation. It's the context, it's the broad context in which wisdom is gained. It also has the idea of being this comprehensive, overarching concept. One commentator I read said, it's not only the foundation of wisdom, it's the ceiling. It's it's, God is the reference point. The fear of the Lord is the consummate, all-encompassing reference point for the gaining of wisdom, in addition to it being a necessary requirement at the outset of pursuing and gaining wisdom. It's a, it's a much more comprehensive idea. So we just need to be careful that we don't think of it in terms of some check mark that a checkbox that we check off in our pursuit of wisdom or our understanding of wisdom. It's it's a comprehensive idea, overarching concept. The other concept that we have here is is really the more prominent one, the more important theological concept, and that's this concept of the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. So If you just look up fear in a dictionary, and you can reference several different ones and they're going to say similar things, but the one that I pulled from said this, a distressing emotion aroused by impending danger, evil, pain, etc. Whether the threat is real or imagined, the feeling, another definition would be the feeling or condition of being afraid, or another one would be anticipation of the possibility that something unpleasant will occur. So these definitions are very common when we think of fear as just an everyday human concept, this idea of fear. It's the, it's the concept of being anxious about some impending doom, some impending disaster. It's the idea of feeling like there's evil or pain on the horizon, and there's a distressing emotional feeling or state of being or reaction to those thoughts about some impending danger or evil or disaster. And this can be something that happens whether, we, whether the, the, the disaster or the pain is real or imagined. It can induce fear, and it's really this emotional state of being a reaction to this. Uh, or it could be the anticipation of that, that coming event and, and something unpleasant happening. And of course, these ideas, though they are common from an emotional reaction kind of standpoint, um, they, they, you can tell that they're all associated with something negative, right? The idea is that I, I have fear because something bad is before me. I am, I am, I am in, at risk of grave danger. I am at risk of some massive failure. I'm at risk of, of losing something, and there's fear... That's associated with it, and it's it's has a a clearly negative bent to it. There's also a definition that you'll find in most dictionaries, and it is this definition of reverential awe, especially toward God. And so now you're getting into more of the common ideas or ways of defining or way of defining the fear of the Lord. This idea of reverential awe, especially toward God, as as this. Sort of dictionary definition would state. But I want to kind of build that out quite a bit more because Scripture gives us a more full-orbed view of this, this principle, this priority, this important really command of fearing the Lord and its relationship to uh, wisdom. What do you know about the original Greek word that's translated fear in our Bibles? I don't know. I have not studied that as a word study. Do you? How many ideas Yeah. I mean I haven't studied it as a New Testament concept, but um, but looking at this from the standpoint of the term itself from a biblical perspective, what you have is you have really two simultaneous ideas. You have a rational idea or a rational component and you have a non-rational component. These are terms that Bruce Waltke would identify. This is how he characterizes these, these, these simultaneous components in this idea of the fear of the Lord. Rational and non-rational. Now don't, don't hear me say rational and irrational. Okay, I'm going to define this in just a moment. A rational would be an objective revelation that can be taught and memorized. So when you look at Scripture, you see this concept of the fear of the Lord being associated with objective truth objective revelation that you can actually learn, that you can actually study, that you can actually memorize. For example, Psalm 3411 says, Come, O children, listen to me, I will teach you the fear of the Lord. So there's this idea of the fear of the Lord as something to be taught to children. Objective truth, objective revelation that can be understood and learned from the standpoint of a teacher to children. Psalm nineteen seven through nine is very similar to that. You have that great passage of scripture in Psalm nineteen that that sort of extols the the, the benefits and wonders and greatness of the word of the Lord. And Psalm nineteen verses seven nine says, "The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple." So you have this this formula that's kind of being set up, saying you know, giving one i one concept or one. Um, term to describe the Word of God. You have the law of the Lord. You have the testimony of the Lord. And then it it talks about why it is described in this manner. The law of the Lord is perfect. Why? It revives the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. It makes wise the simple. So you have this formula being set up. So it continues on. Verse 8, the precepts of the Lord. Again, another synonym for the Word of God. The precepts of the Lord are right rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes, once again. And then you get to verse 9, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. So when you think about that verse, you can't really equate it with the fear of the Lord being clean and fear as some emotional reaction to impending danger. This is sort of that r- rational component of it. And again, the rational and the non-rational components are simultaneous in its, in its understanding. But this would refer to the fear of the Lord being precepts, commandments, the law of the Lord, the word of the Lord, the mind of God as it's revealed to man, the will of God as it's, ex- as it's explicitly stated in the pages of Scripture, the pathways of the Lord that, that, the, that the Lord directs men on. All those things can be learned and understood. And so part of the fear of the Lord is the knowing and understanding and meditating upon and memorizing the word of the Lord, the law of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the fear of the Lord. That's the rational component. When you look at Deuteronomy chapter 31, you see the end there where, where the people are about to go into the promised land and Moses says this in... in um, Deuteronomy 31, verses 9 to 13. Then Moses wrote in his law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the Ark of the Covenant, the Lord and all the elders of Israel. The Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and to all the elders of Israel. Verse 10. And Moses commanded them, at the end of every seven years, at the set time in the year of release, at the Feast of Booths, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and, sojourner, and the sojourner within your towns, here's the key, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God, and be careful to do all the words of this law. Verse 13, and that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land you're going over to the Jordan to possess. Again, this idea of the word of the Lord, the will of God as it's revealed in Scripture, knowing it, learning it, understanding it, is correlated to the fear of the Lord. That's the rational component. But then you do have, simultaneous with that, you have this non-rational component, or this an emotional response. This gets more close to that dictionary definition. An emotional response of fear but also of love and trust. That's how Scripture would characterize the fear of the Lord in a, in a more of an emotional response. It's, it, it is fear, but it's also characterized by love and trust with that. Deuteronomy, in fact, frequently holds these two ideas synonymously together. The idea of the love of the Lord and the fear of the Lord being synonymous in the context of Deuteronomy. So the idea here is that the fear of the Lord, especially as it's related to the beginning of wisdom, is not isolated to a fear that is uh, oriented toward dread of some bad event or some bad outcome or some looming disaster or some pain or suffering that's on the horizon. But it is... An emotional response of fear coupled with love and trust. Because it's the fear of Yahweh. It's the fear of the Lord. In the Old Testament, it's used in concert with the sacred name of God that was given to Moses. The fear of the Lord. It is an emotional response. I read one uh, one commentator who referenced what I thought was a great reference. It's a great way to illustrate this. I really thought it was is compelling. He referenced C. S. Lewis's work, *The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe*. Everybody know that book. If not, it's a movie now. You don't have to read the book. So welcome to you know 21st century. But but *The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe* is this this story of these children who enter through a big wardrobe cabinet. And they go through the back of it and they find themselves in this fantasy world and all the characters and events in this fantasy world called Narnia really represent the biblical narrative. That's that's the idea. It's it's an allegory. And, And in this allegory, you have obviously the central character, Aslan, who is the great lion and he is the representative of Christ. And when the children enter into Narnia and they encounter beaver, who is their guide, Beaver is sort of debriefing them on Narnia, kind of orienting them to Narnia, and he makes reference to Aslan, the lion. And the children ask this question as he's talking about this lion. They say, is he safe? And of course Beaver answers, no, of course not, but he's good. And that was a great way to capture in a narrative Form this idea of the, the non-rational perspective of the fear of the Lord. That, that God is to be feared, but the fear is in the context of love and trust. And ultimately, what we do know is that everyone, even those who despise wisdom and instruction, even the fool, will ultimately one day fear the Lord. And that sense of true fear and dread that comes as a result of judgment. But for the believer, for the one who is the true student of wisdom, the fear of the Lord, is this, this combination, this simultaneous component of, of objective truth, knowing it, understanding it, memorizing it, meditating upon it, hiding it in your heart, and a sense of emotional response, a sense of emotional state of being of awe and reverence, and actual fear of this great God in whom we love and trust, in whom our love and trust is placed fully and wholly. This idea of the fear of the Lord. So let's look more closely now at, at Proverbs. That's sort of a little bit of a broad sweep, but when you look at Proverbs itself, the fear of the Lord, this this reference is used. I think about 15 times, if I'm remembering correctly. And when it's used in Proverbs, again, its it's emphasis is upon this this idea of awe and reverence. This attitude of reverence, which is the basis for true wisdom. Um, And so some examples are, obviously, here in verse 7 of chapter 1, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. You also have it, again, as I said, in chapter 9, verse 10. Um, actually there are 13 other verses, so a total of 15, so I got that number right. There's 15 total uh, references to the fear of the Lord in Proverbs. You have uh, this reference to the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, the fear of the Lord prolongs life, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, the fear of the Lord leads to life, and whoever has it it rests satisfied. So you have these different references to the fear of the Lord that kind of give us a broader profile of what this term means in the context of Proverbs and this understanding and pursuit and acquisition of wisdom. Bruce Waltke says this about the fear of the Lord in its relationship to wisdom. He says, What the alphabet is to reading, and notes to reading music, and numerals to mathematics, the fear of the Lord is to attaining the revealed knowledge from the book of Proverbs. And then he says this, Fools, however, are incapable of this prerequisite for understanding the sages' teaching and knowing wisdom, For they willfully make the corrupt moral choice to refuse the sages' moral teachings. These conceited fools, in contrast to the teachable wise, here's the key, are fixed in the correctness of their own opinions. So this idea of the fear of the Lord as it plays out in the book of Proverbs looms large and becomes a key component and in fact is really the theme that runs throughout the entire text of the book. So I thought as an exercise for us to kind of get our minds around the use of the term and, and to provide more color on it as it's used in Proverbs, we'll just kind of run through a little bit of a survey of these verses. And I, I came across a really simple outline that I thought was helpful to kind of break this down for us. So you start with just this definition of the fear of the Lord. It's just, it's just verses that sort of kind of define it in some way. And so in Proverbs chapter 1 verse 7, you have this first one we've already talked about. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It's the beginning of knowledge. And of course, that's contrasted with fools who despise wisdom and instruction. In 9.10, we've already referenced this one. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So again, it doubles down on wisdom and fear and the knowledge of God, all bundled up together. Then you have Proverbs 15.33, the fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom and humility comes before honor. So you have this idea of, again, instructing in wisdom, learning something. The fear of the Lord ha- is tied to learning, that rational, objective truth. Again, under the, ca- under the heading of the definition of the fear of the Lord, as it plays out in Proverbs, you have Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13, The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. So you have this moral quality that's attached to the fear of the Lord. Again, when you go back and think about the fear of the Lord being a synonym in in Psalm 19 of the word of the Lord or the law of the Lord, it stands to reason that the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. That the word of the Lord has a, a moral quality to it. The word of the Lord, the law of the Lord, the ways of the Lord are all in antithesis to evil. So that kind of sets up the definition of the fear of the Lord or the terms that sort of define it in the book of Proverbs. It's the beginning of wisdom and knowledge, it is instruction in wisdom, and it is hatred of evil, the fear of the Lord. But then you have some verses that kind of speak to how to acquire the fear of the Lord. Proverbs chapter 2 is really the most expansive, I think, in this regard, and we'll, we'll be getting there pretty soon here. But this is that section that starts, about, that starts to talk about the instruction of a father to a son. And, and he's talking about the acquisition of knowledge and wisdom in this section. And so in Proverbs chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, he says, My son, if you receive my words... And treasure up my commandments within you, making your ear attentive to wisdom, and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find knowledge. So, again, wrapped up in this idea of the fear of the Lord is receiving instruction. It's the idea of a posture or disposition of humility. The the, the whole point here is this appeal to the son to receive the instruction. To not just hear it because you have to sit with your father and listen to him drone on these words that he thinks are so wise. it, It paints this picture of a father appealing to a son to humbly receive this instruction. And, and, and not only to receive it, but to develop a passion for pursuing it. So there's two ideas that are in play, at play here. And so this, this understanding or acquiring the fear of the Lord, it has to do with humbly receiving instruction, listening with an attentive ear to wisdom, leaning in or inclining your heart to understanding. And then it goes to these, these statements of value, Pursuing it like it's treasure, like it's to be prized above all things material. And then he says, Then, then you will understand the fear of the Lord. Then in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 7, again, this reference to humility Be wise, be not wise, excuse me, be not wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Summary statement of everything we've just been saying. Humility, sandwiched around the fear of the Lord, on the other side, turning away from evil. The moral value of it. The law of the Lord being being right. The precepts of the Lord. The the fear of the Lord. All characterized there in a moral context of turning away from evil. So you have this acquiring of the fear of the Lord that is referenced in Proverbs. Proverbs. Listening and receiving instruction humbly, seeking after it as a treasured prize, and not being wise in your own eyes, not being settled in your own opinions and thinking that you've got it all figured out, but being humble in the receipt of instruction and wisdom. And then Proverbs talks quite a bit about the benefits of the fear of the Lord. So you have sort of some definitions of the fear of the Lord. You have ways to acquire the fear of the Lord, then you have some very clear benefits that are stated in the book of Proverbs about the fear of the Lord. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 27 says, The fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be short. Now again, going back to what we talked about several weeks ago about understanding or interpreting Proverbs, clearly this is not some dogmatic, unequivocal, unassailable promise that wisdom is going to necessarily Prolong every wise person's life, and that the years of the wicked always will be cut short. Those, those, those have been uh, you know, proven false many, many times over. But the, gu- the guiding principle is always true. That as a general axiom, the fear of the Lord, one of its benefits, is that it prolongs life. And if you just think about practical living as one of the primary characteristics of wisdom, we're talking about the practical application of knowledge skillfully applying the truths and principles of God's word and God's will to daily life. It stands to reason that that will lead to certain benefits that would tend to prolong life. I mean, if you are are choosing friends wisely, if you are taking care of your body as the temple of the Lord, if you are making good and sound decisions about your life, if you're planning your ways as opposed to being impulsive in your decision-making, all these things kind of come together and serve up this, this benefit of prolonged life. But when you look at the wicked, the idea here is that the risks that are taken, the evil that they propagate, the associations that they... Manifest and that they travel in and traffic in all increase the 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 chances of a shortened life. Proverbs fourteen twenty six. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence, and his children will have a refuge. So two ideas there about one of the benefits of the fear of the Lord producing what I would call stability. A peaceable stability, a confidence. This is not the idea of some kind of self-confidence and and that can lead to easily lead to arrogance. It's 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 the freedom of living in the will of God, confidently. It's the freedom that comes from from living life and making decisions and planning your days in a way that's going to be honoring to the Lord and puts you in a position to be fruitful in the kingdom of God, and it produces a confidence a certitude a peaceableness of life proverbs 14:27 continues that same that same passage continues and it says the fear of the lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death so again this this positive sort of benefit of it being a source of life of of energy of Fruitfulness is the idea here of this fear of the Lord provide, uh, producing this. Proverbs fifteen sixteen. Again, when you look at Proverbs, one commentator made this point: it it wouldn't be uh, hard, you wouldn't be hard pressed to say, you know, you look at Proverbs, and if you look at it from one certain angle, it almost looks like the, like this instruction manual for how you can become happy and prosperous in this life, because there's a lot of Uh, principles that are tied to prosperity, toward success, toward effective living, and all the benefits and accoutrements that might go along with that. And so you look at it from one angle and you could start to think, okay, well, this is a little bit different, right? I mean, we're not supposed to love the world or the things in the world. You know, the, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life, we're sojourners, we're passing through. It's almost like it feels a little bit contradictory to that that principle of seeing our, our place here in this world as temporary. And to not be beholden to the things of this world. And to not get entrapped or ensnared by our love of the things of this world. And then you start reading Proverbs, and it's a lot of references to success and prosperity. And if you do this, and if you do that, and if you live this way, then you will have success, and then you will have prosperity, and all this sort of thing. But you get to uh, Proverbs chapter 15, verse 16, and it cuts right through that. It says this, Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord. So again, it's not one thing or another. But this truth is, is axiomatic for sure. And this talks about the truth that if you're having to make a trade Always trade for the fear of the Lord. Don't trade for the accoutrements of material success, or wealth, or popularity, or prestige, or reputation. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Proverbs 16, another benefit. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. So there's this redemptive quality of the fear of the Lord. It results in this benefit of of having iniquity atoned for and, and, and causing or compelling one to want to turn away from evil. Now I want you to think about this for a moment. Think about your own life and your own walk with Christ. I would say that for anyone who is faithfully pursuing a vibrant relationship with the God who saved them, who is cultivating that spiritual life in Christ, who is working out their salvation with fear and trembling. I would, I would argue that the person who is doing that it could be easily characterized as someone who is becoming more and more and more and more and more and more, and more aware of their own sin and wretchedness, even though they're growing in faithfulness, what's also growing is their awareness of sin. Like every every little thought, every little misplaced word, every little motive that is wicked or self-centered or self-serving or hurtful and not building someone up, the awareness that comes from some, from from being in the Word of God and pursuing sanctification and growth in our Christian walk, you become heightened in your awareness of your own sin. And it just looms large before you. Even though, externally, your life is seeming to be quite, you know, quite faithful. But it doesn't feel that way all the time. And, if you're growing in this way, you're wanting to flee those things more and more and more and more. And that's what this is talking about. The fear of the Lord produces that in us. It produces in us a desire to turn away or run from evil. Because we're becoming more and more and more aware of the minutest inner places of sin and wickedness that are still part of our flesh day by day. Proverbs 19.23, another benefit. The fear of the Lord leads to life. And whoever has it rests satisfied. He will not be visited by harm. Now again, is Proverbs teaching us that the wise person will never face any harm. No. It's a general principle. But the fact of the matter is is that the fear of the Lord does lead to life. And it does have this characteristic of contentment associated with it. Whoever has it rests satisfied. When you think of that pinnacle passage from the, from the pen of the Apostle Paul about contentment, he talks about this, and it, you, you can just hear it. He might as well just say wisdom as an as, as explicit word in this passage because he talks about how he's learned the secret that in whatever circumstance he is, whether in plenty or in want, he's learned to be content. There's wisdom in that. That's a part of growing in wisdom whether in plenty or in want, because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. There is a contentedness that comes as a result of having the fear of the Lord. And then another benefit is that the rewards, uh, chapter 22, verse 4, the reward for humility and the fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. So again, this promise of of a form of, of wealth and honor and life for those who are humble and fear the Lord. The general principle there. Well, then you have, and we're almost done here, we, you have this description of fools. And, and the description of fools in Proverbs is this complete contrast to the fear of the Lord. Listen to Proverbs chapter 1, and, and we're going to read several verses here. It looks like we're going to read verse 20 through 33 of Proverbs chapter 1. Wisdom cries aloud in the street, in the markets she raises her voice, at the head of the noisy street she cries out, at the entrance of the city gates she speaks, how long O simple ones will you love being simple, how long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge, if you turn at my reproof behold I will pour out my spirit to you, I will make my words known to you. Because I have called and you refuse to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded, because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you, when terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you. Then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me, because... They hated knowledge and did not choose to fear the Lord. That is the description of the fool. Someone who persists in shunning evil, even though shunning wisdom, even though wisdom is crying out in the streets. They become scoffers, and they hate knowledge, and they do not choose the fear of the Lord. And then you have this final admonition associated with the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 23, 17. Let your, not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. So, the admonition here is that this, this principle of the fear of the Lord is to be a, a consummate practice, a consummate discipline, a consummate state of thinking and being for the wise. They continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. We talked about Solomon and I'll conclude with this. We talked about Solomon a few weeks ago and how he wrote Ecclesiastes and here's the man who was gifted with a unique level of wisdom, a unique degree of wisdom from the Lord. And in in Ecclesiastes, it's this record of him completely misusing that and, and pursuing all these vain pleasures of of um physical, physical relationship with women and building projects and the, ac- the acquisition of wealth and on and on and on it goes. And it's vanity of vanities. All is vanity is kind of the, the gist of all that. No matter what he set his heart to and his mind to, he did, not, he did not prevent himself from enjoying any possible pleasure or accomplishment. And at the very end of Ecclesiastes, he says this in chapter 12, verse 13, the end of the matter... All has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. So, when we look at the fear of the Lord as the beginning of wisdom, we see that the fear of the Lord is characterized by an innumerable number of benefits, a tremendous amount of value in the practical daily living of life. It's also tied to genuine salvation. You cannot be a believer and not understand something about the fear of the Lord. Something about the fear of the Lord. I'm not talking about having complete understanding of it. I'm talking about having a knowledge of the fear of the Lord. So there's a redemptive element to the fear of the Lord. It's not just some box that you check so that you can say, now I'm on my way to becoming wise. The fear of the Lord is all that's left at the end of all of Solomon's pursuits. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Any final thoughts before we pray and are dismissed?